You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Detroit's Project Greenlight now boasts 509 businesses as subscribers around the city. And maybe you've noticed the flashing green lights at gas stations and convenience stores and other places. That means these places have surveillance cameras that run all day and all night. And if a crime is committed, police can access the footage to see who they need to go catch. Mayor Mike Duggan and Police Chief James Craig and other officials all say this program is working wonderfully, that it is lowering crime in the city. But how do they know that? Is their faith in the program backed by data? The answer is actually quite a bit complicated. And that's where we want to continue the conversation here on Detroit Today with the idea of lowering crime in the city of Detroit through surveillance. Uh, We want to hear from you about what you think about Project Greenlight. Do you see these green lights flashing throughout the city? Uh, Do you think that that makes you feel safer if you stop at a gas station in the middle of the night or at a convenience store? Do you feel like it's something that is lowering crime, the awful crime epidemic that we've had here in the city of Detroit for a really long time. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Also want to hear from you if you think this is just a gimmick, uh, that these flashing green lights and the surveillance cameras don't actually deter crime or make it easier for police to catch perpetrators after they commit crimes. Joining us now to talk more about this issue is Allie Gross. She's a business reporter at the Detroit Free Press. She wrote a story in April of last year titled, Does Detroit's Project Greenlight Really Make the City Safer? Allie, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yes, great to have you here. Also with us is Musa Bazi. He is the owner of The Mobile on East Jefferson and Alter Road, and it is one of the Project Greenlight participants in the city. Musa, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Yeah. So, Allie, uh, let's talk about this piece that you wrote. Uh, And when I say in the open that this is complicated, I thought you did a good job in this story of explaining how complicated it is. Uh, in a nutshell, tell us tell us what we should be thinking about Project Greenlight and how well it works. Sure. So when I approach the topic, I guess the first two main questions that come to mind are, one, does the, pro- does the program work? And two, it's obviously been expanding pretty quickly. We're at 500 businesses today. Um, as it expands, let's say we go with the argument that it does work, um, and we can come back to that, but let's say we say it works. Will it still be as effective as the market becomes more saturated? Is there a tipping point when you have too many cameras that no longer the um, deterrent factor is as effective? So in answer to the first question, um, currently right now, there is no data set that compares non-green light locations to green light locations. Um, So I met with uh, Police Chief James Craig in January 2018 for that story. Mm -hmm. And we talked a little bit about what evidence there is to show that Greenlight works. Um, And so the data sets that he provided, um, one is looking at the first eight Greenlight locations, which would be um, Musa's gas station Mm -hmm. is is one of them. 
Um, and crime has gone down at those first eight locations. I think the original statistic that was given was like it's got, it went down by 48 percent or 50 percent. Um, academics, however, point out that that's a really small data set. It's a, it's you're small looking sample. at eight. You're looking at eight um, locations. The other data set that was provided was looking at more crime at large in the city. And the thing with that is crime is going down nationally. And it's been going down in Detroit um, at a pretty steady pace since about, I think, 2000. And so it's really hard, academics say, to truly pinpoint um, crime decreasing in the city of Detroit to one specific program without looking at a counterfactual. So without saying, all right, we're going to study greenlit locations and non-greenlit locations and actually assess how has crime decreased or what's the difference between these two data sets. Um, when I spoke with Chief Craig in January of 2018, that had that did not exist. I reached out again in November for a story on Greenlight <clears throat> is now coming to public housing. So it will be at its first location. I think it should be now, um, March. And when I reached out again, I was told that MSU got a grant to actually study, do a comparative study. But at the time, or nothing has been published as, as of as of yet. So, so you, as you say, you, you talked with Police Chief James Craig before you wrote this article, and we've got uh, part of that exchange. I want to I sure. take a listen to that. How do we know that that is due to Project Green? Crime has been trending down well, nationally and in Detroit. For yeah, but we, we know. I mean, we know because if gas stations and liquor stores were locations, those are locations where people congregate. So let's look at the crime of robbery. Yeah. Where do robberies occur? It's a crime of opportunity. So his response is, we know. But, but then he doesn't back that up with any sort of data. He, he, he just says, listen, uh, if you've got this camera at a, at a gas station, uh, people are going are gonna to stay away. People who want to cause trouble are going to stay away. Yes. I mean, a lot of it is based off of, throughout that interview, um, there is a lot of, of kind of going in circles, it felt like, where it, it was, you have to just trust. This is an expensive program. We wouldn't do this program. We wouldn't invest so many resources into this program if it didn't work. So trust that this works. Mm. Um, and again, I, the researchers that I spoke with, it might very well work. And I think there are people that very much believe and they're seeing that it's working um, or they believe that it's working too. But at the same time, just from an academic perspective, it's very difficult to make the argument that it's for sure working without a comparative analysis that looks again at the green light versus non-green light locations. So, so Musa Bazi, you're the owner of the mobile station at uh, Jefferson and Alter, a place that I patronize a fair amount of time. I know exactly where that is. I've been there many times. Uh, you are a participant in Project Greenlight. Tell me yes. why and tell me what the difference is in your experience before uh, Project Greenlight and, and after it. You know, we have uh, three sites in the city of Detroit. They're all green light. And I encourage everybody that has a business in the city of Detroit to go green light. First of all, the safety of the customers and safety of the employees. And in case of an incident happens, <clears throat> we have live footage to see. Many years ago, other businesses had surveillance systems that were not very accurate or uh, not very clear. 
some sites still have the uh, VCR site, uh, working. By having a green light, you feel confidence to go to work. Finally, we feel that we are safe. Somebody's watching us. In case of an incident happens, the Detroit police automatically are watching, and they know wh- which way uh, the criminals went. And they could uh, dispatch other you know, uh, police officers to get to the site. And uh, customers come up to us and tell us how safe they feel. Now employees are safer. Some employees, before we interview them, they ask us, if, do you have green light? And it does make a difference. It gives us a little bit of confidence to say we have a clean site for others to work in. Yeah. So, so have you seen <clears throat> actual crime incidents go down at your station yes. since this? Yes. So you had more crime before. Oh, we were, uh, it was depressing going to work. For a period of time, we had smash and grab. That was very popular in the east side. Since we put the green light, we have not had one smash and grab, which we're, it, it, this is the best thing that ever happened to us. So, so when you say smash and grab, you mean smashing like uh, a customer's car window and taking things out yes. of it? Yeah. Not, not, not the station itself, necessarily. No. The, the station... I mean, we have cameras inside the door where they know they're not going to cause any problems. And um, we've seen crime go down. Uh, criminals don't come to our locations anymore, in which we're happy. We get good customers coming in. Yeah. So, Allie, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about crime is that there is – you know, the statistical side of it, and that's the truth, and those are facts. But there's also this idea of perception, right? If, if people feel safer, if criminals feel that they are more likely to get caught in one place than another, they might be less likely to, 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 to do something. And so I, I guess it's kind of, that, that adds to the complication, right? I 100% agree, and that's something that I definitely, when I went out and spoke with various gas station owners, and patrons for that story, that's definitely that kind of nuance was brought up. I would point out that on that equal side, however, so the Urban Institute, which is a think tank based in DC, they did a study on in 2011, it published, looking at surveillance in Chicago, Baltimore, and um, DC. And what they found, they were looking at, um, so the, the Chicago system was probably the one that most mirrors what's happening in Detroit right now. And they looked at two neighborhoods that were in the same precinct. In one of them, they saw that crime, it went down by 12%. And they did have, they did a comparative study. So they were able to kind of say that resolutely in a way that we can't say right now in Detroit. Um, But they, they did see that. But in the same exact precinct, there was another neighborhood where there was no decrease in crime whatsoever. And the paper stated that the reason why crime didn't go down in that other neighborhood was because um, people didn't believe that they were being monitored. And so there's this issue that goes back to that tipping point saturation, Mm -hmm. which is once you have a city kind of coded in cameras, if there isn't that manpower, that ability to monitor 24-7, as is the whole point of the real-time crime center, how can you watch that? I mean, when I spoke with Chief Craig in January 2018, there were over 200 businesses, and he laughed at the idea of how could we possibly, he even admitted that it would be impossible to even assume that they were watching all of the locations at once. 
I know that with Greenlight right now, um, if there is an issue and you call 911, you get bumped to priority status. So your sh- shop or business would go up immediately to kind of the main feed of Real Time Crime Center. Additionally, when I visited in January, they also have eight to 10. So the way the system works is at the beginning of a shift, um, they flick through all the cameras to make sure they're working. And then there are eight to 10 high crime spots that kind of get focused and prioritized. So for example, um, Six Mile and Woodward, which is a spot in Detroit that's known for a lot of crime. There's um, a lot of Johns pick up sex workers there. And that's one of the spots they focus on. And one of the success stories that they've talked about was a transgender woman was shot and robbed in, I think it was November 2017. And she, it was a green light location. So even though no one called the police, the crime was obviously wasn't deterred. Um, so that's one of the things that they say green light will do. So it wasn't deterred and it wasn't stopped in real time, but because it was a hot spot, um, police were able to pretty immediately enter into a high-speed pursuit and they were able to arrest someone. They they caught the person that night. So that is definitely one of the success stories that um, DPD touts. Some critics of it kind of point out that, um, A, that was a hot spot, so they were already focused on that. Is that going to happen at all other locations, especially if the market is oversaturated? And then additionally... um, if the crime is not caught in the moment and it's not deterred, why can't CCTV or some other form of um, surveillance occur that doesn't, f- critics point out it, or they believe that it tramples on privacy. Um, and so there's this fear of kind of big brother watching. Right. If, we're, um, if, if we're allowing cameras to look everywhere in, in our city, are we giving up some of our privacy? Some of our privacy, yeah. And, you know, it's at obviously the gas stations and party stores around the city, but now it's at a school. Um, they have green light starting in public housing, so it, it has expanded. Mm. Uh, go ahead, Musa. You know, when you're doing business in the city of Detroit and you've seen the stuff we see, we welcome the green light. Me personally, I think this is the best thing we ever had done, and you know, I encourage everybody that owns a business to have another set of eyes watching. If the, I know the police can be watching 24 hours a day, but again, the the clear cameras, I mean, uh, when the incident happens, you don't have to wait till the detective comes in, makes an appointment with you to come in, monitor. It's automatically done over a few minutes, uh, you know, after the crime happens, mm-hmm. which it helps up. It gives the Detroit police an extra tool where to look, what kind of vehicle, who's the person, what they're wearing. So I encourage everybody to do it, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go to the phones here. We got some folks who want to chime in on the <laughs> conversation. Uh, Terry in Detroit, you're up first. What's Good know. morning, hey. uh, Ali Steven, and your guest from the gas station, the owner. Um, I just wanted to ask, you know, there's always a quest for data to prove something, but I would ask, is there any evidence that anyone has been harmed by Project Greenlight. I mean, have there been any false arrests or mistaken identities? Um, I I really don't see the downside of giving a little margin of extra security. I think that perception, and Stephen, you mentioned this, 
perception plays a big role in how we feel about our personal safety. And I think the owner mentioned that employees and owners feel more confident when they go to work because they know that there's this extra margin of protection. I think the fear of crime in Detroit has always uh, been outsized compared to the actual numbers, even as bad as the numbers have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we have to do some extraordinary things to help people feel a little bit safer and to change the perception. The last thing I wanted to say is that I think that it's a paid-for service. So as more people join it, it means there's more revenue going into the service, and one would hope that the police department would hire more eyes to watch the cameras. Hmm. Uh, Terry, those are really great points. Thanks for calling and and making them, Allie, quickly. Uh, Is there any proof that this harms anyone? That's a great question, I think. Sure. I don't know of any mistaken identities. Um, I do know that there is facial recognition software that is connected to the program. And I don't remember the statistic, but there was uh, Paul Egan, a great reporter at the Detroit Free Press, came out with a piece earlier this week looking at um, the database of facial facial recognition. Um, He was focusing on MSP. Uh, Michigan State Police, but there was a stat in there about kind of some of the the, the uh, technology is not super up to date, and it's specifically or not up to date. It it has some issues, and specifically, I think it has some issues with um, black and brown individuals that it, it isn't able to be as accurate. Um, so that could be a potential problem. Um, and again, I think. One of the people that I spoke with for the original piece, um, Eric Williams, who... Um, yeah, who's actually waiting on the line. Is he? Oh, try great. to get him into the conversation here. We've, Please we've get him hurry. in, because he has a good... Like, just yeah. let him speak. Okay. I won't, don't need to... Hey, Eric, uh, welcome to the show. I, I have about 30 seconds left in the segment, though, so I need you to, I need you to okay. be pretty quick. Okay, so I would say this. First of all, you have to make sure you separate Project Greenlight from surveillance. Project Greenlight also includes not only prioritization on 911 calls, it includes actually having officers stop by the location more frequently, Mm -hmm. and that in and of itself would lower crime. So if you're going to look at surveillance, you have to break that out. The other part I would say is the police get to monitor these things as they want, and they can share this information with any other law enforcement agency they want to. So imagine the police being able to place cameras at a site where, let's say, a Black Lives Matter meeting is taking place or where a Muslim uh, congregation is having a meeting. The police suddenly have the ability to not only monitor that, but track the faces of the people who attend those meetings. And personally, from a civil liberties perspective, I have issues with that. I think Mm -hmm. that's very problematic since there are absolutely no controls in place. There are no procedures and policies. There's no restraint Uh, that's imposed on... Right. We've done FOIA requests. There aren't any procedures or policies governing Project Greenlight surveillance at this point. So, And it's been up and running for three years. So there are a lot of problems with Project Greenlight from yeah. a civil liberties perspective. Yeah. Eric, I really appreciate you calling in because I know how passionate you are about uh, about this subject, but also how knowledgeable you are about it. Uh, I appreciate that. Okay, we are out of time for this segment, but uh, Ali Gross of the Detroit Free Press, Musa Vazi, owner of the Mobile on East Jefferson and Alter, thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Up next, we're going to continue talking about crime. We're going to talk about another initiative 
that now has hard data to say that uh, it is lowering crime in the city. We'll hear from two Wayne State researchers about their look at demolitions in Detroit neighborhoods. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. There are lots of reasons to try to get rid of the many, many blighted homes in the city of Detroit, but a new study from Wayne State University suggests blight demolition may also be reducing crime in Detroit neighborhoods. And if that's true, what are we to make of some of the environmental and other concerns with the really fast pace of demolition that we've seen? under Mayor Mike Duggan. Joining us now to talk more about this study is Matthew Larson. He's an assistant professor of criminal justice at Wayne State University. Matthew, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having us, Stephen. Also with us is Charles Klum. He's an associate professor of criminal justice at Wayne State University. Thank you for having us today, Stephen. All right, so let's start with what you guys found in this study. Um, so the focus of this study was on examining um, basically four years of demolitions here in the city of Detroit. So we looked at demolitions occurring from 2010 to 2014 and um, whether or not those demolitions were associated with changes in crime from 2009 to 2014. And so during that time, um, there was roughly 9,400 demolitions completed in the city of Detroit and, of course, hundreds of thousands of crimes. So we, we looked at a very small um, a unit of analysis, the block group level, which is more of a research-oriented term, mm-hmm. to see whether or not these and that's, na- that's census data. Yeah, okay. correct. Right. Yep, for the U.S. Census Bureau, and just to see at a at a small scale whether or not um, neighborhoods experiencing demolitions um, actually benefited any in any real way from um, changes in crime during that time. And and so when we say crime reduction. What does that actually mean uh, that, that, that you found? Talk about what kinds of crimes you saw. Well, we, we assessed uh, several different measures of crime. So we did a total crime, which was all reported crime. And, and just to, to back up a moment, the, these data that we used are the, the data that are available on the Detroit Open, uh, open Data Portal. Right? So these are all publicly available So anyone data. could go and, and do... Some of it, the work that you guys do. <laughs> exactly, sure. right. Um, so we looked at total crime, we looked at violent crime, property crime, and then we parsed out drug, drug crimes as well. Okay? And, and, and talk about the, the extent of crime reduction. How big of a drop are we talking about? Yeah, so, you know, in the paper that we published and that the Free Press uh, reported on last week, we see for um, total crime, at least, that for every 10 demolitions, the city can experience... Um, a one to three percent reduction in crime at the neighborhood level that we focused on. So when we think about the neighborhoods that experience significant levels of demolition, whether that 30, 40, 50 or more, some neighborhoods experience more than 150 during that time, we can, you know, theoretically imagine some pretty notable changes in crime at that, those small units of analysis. And that's what was borne out in the data in this preliminary work that we did. So, so somebody might look at this report and say one percent, two percent, three percent reductions in crime. Eh. It doesn't sound like very much. Sure, but they probably don't live in these areas. So, I mean, that's one thing to keep in mind that, you know, in, in the paper, obviously, it, 
things are very abstract, but when you kind of humanize it and, and talk about people living in these block groups, I think that one, two, three percent reduction uh, is meaningful in their daily lives. And I think that's kind of uh, the larger picture here uh, that we're trying to, to get out. Yeah. yeah, especially one of the findings, Stephen, that we had in our work is not only did total crime change at the neighborhood level that we looked at, um, but so too did violent crime. So violent crime change. And we think about the costs and the implications, both human costs, social costs, economic costs, you know, a small re- percentage reduction is, is significant. And yeah. so, you know, despite not finding effects on drug crime, which we anticipated, we did see, you know, violent crimes change in, in important ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I operate a nonprofit in the neighborhood where I was born over on the West side. And it's a neighborhood that was very hard hit by depopulation and deinvestment over a long period of time. Uh, on our single block on Tuxedo Street, we have 14 abandoned houses. When we started, there were 17 uh, when we started our project. Uh, but just changing those three properties that we've been able to turn around, I, I can absolutely say that the perception that changes with that, the idea that this is a place that people are investing in, that that people care about, the the level of organization it brings to the people who live there, right? That they start to convene around the idea that things can get better. I, I guess I'm not terribly surprised that crime then would also would also go down. Uh, I, I can't say for sure whether crime is is, you know, statistically down in our neighborhood, but certainly that feeling of being safer, of being less victimized is is pretty critical. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it speaks to this idea of collective efficacy uh, that we talk about uh, in our field and, and kind of fostering relationships among residents of areas. It makes it, as you're saying, if, if people are less fearful, they're more likely to go outside, they're more likely to interact with one another. And and we know through other uh, you know veins of research that that in and of itself can have a, a crime suppression effect. Uh, again, the number on the phones, as always, is 313-577-1019, 313-577-1019. Call and tell us what you think the link may be between demolition and crime. What does that look like in the neighborhood where you live or work here in the city of Detroit? Are you seeing demolitions and seeing uh, crime go down as well? You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Brett in Ypsilanti. Brett, welcome to Detroit today. Hi. Uh, hey, thanks for thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. I had a question about um, so the demolition connection. I think it makes sense from things that I've I've heard and seen. Um, but I also wondered if there was possibly a connection between um, you know other programs maybe that happen at the city level, and so I wondered if there looked into like other factors that are maybe associated with blight removal? Like, are the communities that receive funding for blight removal also receiving more funding for the, uh, other projects, or do they have higher participation? Right. Yeah, Brett, um, that's a great, that's a yeah. really great question. Of course, that that is uh, in research terms about the difference between correlation and causation, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good point to to bring up the multiple treatment effect or the possibility of a multiple treatment effect. And, and yeah, we can't rule out the possibility uh, that other processes uh, were, were, were simultaneously working uh, in favor of demolitions. But given that we looked at this across the entire city, all 879 
block groups, um, it seems not very plausible that these programs would be operating across all of those block groups. So while it's possible that in certain block groups there might have been uh, an effect from another program that maybe uh, attenuated what what we found, uh, I think it's it's fairly safe to say that the results are uh, mostly a product of, of demolition and not of other programs operating across the city. Yeah, and we controlled for important structural covariates, like, you know, the, the share of uh, neighborhood living in poverty and housing instability and, you know, so on and so forth. But there are some things that we missed that might be at play, too, in addition to what Charles was just saying. So, for instance, the Detroit Land Bank Authority has been highly involved, right, in so many of the neighborhoods experiencing demolition. Some of the homes are being restored through the land bank, Right, homes that were previously um, not resided in or now lived in, and so you know, moving forward, I'm paying a little bit closer attention and being sensitive to the possibility that those factors might be at play too. In addition to you know your previous uh, guests, we're talking about uh, Project Greenlight. Project you Greenlight, know, sure. And that's something that's obviously ramped up pretty meaningfully in the last few years. And so moving forward, paying attention to that and seeing the degree to which that you know contributes to some of these changes is important. Uh, as researchers. So. Okay. Matthew Larson and Charles Klom of the Criminal Justice Program at Wayne State University. Thanks to both of you for being here. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you. That's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, the community service of Wayne State University. Talk with you again tomorrow. <laughs>